Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hello, all listeners. Today we will be listening to a very interesting interview that Eva did the 7th of March about patient-led organization within AMR, but from two very different perspectives. Enjoy! Hello, dear listeners. I am very, very excited to be bringing you a little bit of a different interview today to the podcast. So today we are sitting, albeit very separated from each other, thanks to the internet, here today with Laura Chigolot, Executive Director of Health First Europe, and Pernilla Ron Holm, who is the chair of the Miracle Patient Association. And I wanted to sit down with them to just have a conversation about a very interesting European project and the work that patient associations are doing within AMR. Laura, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Good morning, everyone. My name is Laura Cigolotz, and I act as the Interim Executive Director of Health First Europe, which is a neutral, uh, independent, uh, not-for-profit organization based in Brussels, Belgium, which brings together patient groups, uh, healthcare professionals, academics, and the medical technology industry. And the overarching vision of Health First Europe, of this multi-stakeholder coalition, is to transform healthcare through innovative solutions that not only enhance safety for patients, for healthcare professionals across Europe, but also contribute to the resilience and sustainability of our healthcare systems in Europe. And patient safety, including aspects relating to antimicrobial resistance, uh, have always been a central topic and a core element of the Health First Europe programs over the years. And indeed, in 2020, we formed the first European patient group on antimicrobial resistance and have been coordinating this group that now includes 30 national patient associations from all over Europe. Lovely. So one of those patient associations all over Europe is Miracle Patient Association, which is located here in Sweden. Pernilla, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your story behind AMR and how Miracle came about? Well, in 2011, I gave birth to twins three months early. And they were quite uh, feeling okay. But sadly, I had an infection that hadn't been discovered exactly what it was. So when I gave birth, they got transmitted with ESPL Klebsiella pneumoniae, which resulted in sepsis. And the other daughter who first got sick, Kirsty, she got uh, two sorts of antibiotics. And Freya, who survived she got four different sorts of antibiotics. So she survived getting more different kinds of antibiotics. So sadly, my daughter Kirsty, she died when she was eight days old. Uh, And this is, it happens a lot in the neonatal care units. It's just that families don't really find the voice. Of course, you're really busy taking care of the survivor if you have twins and the other one survived, and obviously you're struggling with grief. Mm-hmm. 
So after this, uh, I decided I have many years of working within the healthcare system. And there were things I thought that things could improve, things that I thought this needs to be done. So together with a friend, another friend who had twins, also prematurely, we started this organization and um, started networking with uh, supporting families who lost uh, twins or triplets. I started making uh, um, funeral clothes for babies with uh, donated wedding dresses and debating in media about the situation in in the neonatal care units and about antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. So, Bernilla, you said you reach out to parents of premature babies and you try to raise awareness about the situation in the neonatal care and also the potential risks of, of resistance and infections, I assume. What other things you do with the patients and affected people of AMR? How does your association support them? Well, we worked a lot with uh, information, debating in media, The parents who come home after being, for example, three months in the neonatal care unit, that they don't have any information about uh, antibiotic resistance. And the premise they're getting antibiotics uh, regularly, it's something that it's very unusual if they don't get antibiotics because they are so sensitive to infections. And uh, I think it's important to inform the parents when they go home, this is what you should do, this is what you should think about, because these families, they are often forced to stay at home for months because the children are so sensitive to infections and they struggle with uh, both relatives, society to understand how sensitive to infections these children are and uh, it's a very tough situation and to inform easy things you can do like wash your hands and stay at home if you feel sick, things like that but also in long term, what can we all do to be part of the solution? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I do not have children myself, so I haven't gone through the process of you know, being pregnant and giving birth and the type of care and information that is out there in the clinics for the people that are going through those processes. Would you say that maybe information that is given, it's more general and not focusing on a specific possible risks, like it would be antimicrobial resistance, is more in general, maybe they talk about infections, maybe they talk about preemies having a yet not developed immune system and therefore, but do you think that there is still a lack of information about resistance in particular? Yes, absolutely. For example, I didn't get the information about the infection until the day before my daughter died. I think healthcare in general are really scared of of talking about it, both because they think maybe that the parents won't understand or it's a, a tough situation. It's a trauma just giving birth prematurely. And then you're in a situation where maybe your child will die. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's important to have good communication and information. That's really important regardless of how tough the situation is. Mm-hmm. Yes, talking through the difficult, yes. having those difficult conversations. And, yes. 
ultimately the parents are going to be taking care of those babies when they have to come out of the hospitals. Yes. And I've, I've been um, also focusing on the importance of having single rooms in the neonatal intensive care units that when there's an infection, it won't spread to 15 babies. It will stop with one or two babies if you have single rooms. So that's something that I've helped out. Here in Gothenburg, they uh, rebuild one floor so the parents could have one single room for each child. Oh, that's very interesting. And that initiative came from the patients, right? Yes. It's something that I've uh, really spoken hard about. It's very important because they realize when uh, my child died, all the children, there were about 15 children in one room, a big room. So all the children were infected by this ESBL Klebsiella, but only my daughter died. But if there had been single rooms, not all children would have been infected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Infection prevention yeah. and control Absolutely. Uh, processes, not only, yes. you know, in other wards in the hospital, but also from very early on, on, yes. on the NICUs as well. Laura, I would like to talk a little bit about how did the idea of the AMR patient group came about? Well, we all appreciate that really antimicrobial resistance is one of the most serious threats to public health globally, right? It's not only at the European level. However, the the level of awareness and also understanding of uh, this uh, very serious public health threats is still quite low and really varies as well across member states in Europe. Therefore, because we operate at the European level, we decided to a little bit gauge the interest of patient advocates, patient-led organizations across Europe on this subject. And and we officially launched this European patient group on AMR in November 2020 to coincide with the European Antibiotic Awareness Day and also the world's antimicrobial Awareness Week that it's always held in November, usually from the 18th to the 24th of November. And the AMR patient group is an initiative by Health First Europe, including various patient-led organizations that are really committed to address the gap in awareness at the patient level about the danger of antibiotic misuse and the lack of effective infection prevention and control measures. So our idea was really to empower uh, citizens, patients, regardless where they are based, with the necessary knowledge about antimicrobial resistance so that everyone ultimately understands when it's appropriate to take antibiotics, but also how to take them more responsibly. So that's basically where the the idea originated from. And the, the key objectives of this group are certainly to raise awareness among patients about AMR, but also healthcare associated infections to help reduce antibiotic misuse, but also to build a consistent patient voice across Europe so that these patient groups, uh, advocates at the national level, 
can become, you know, real advocates for national policies that can, you know, address AMR. Mm-hmm. And ultimately also, uh, it's our objective to broaden the AMR debate uh, to include infection prevention and control measures. Mm-hmm. So that's really what the main goals of this AMR patient group are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it as uh, as a way to empower the patients as the agents of change. As you were saying, Pernilla, you know, the idea that your patient association was able to put forward an infection prevention and control measure like getting single unit rooms for the babies. That is very important. And I would think that there might be a lot of other ideas and a lot of other actions that might actually be ignited by these patient associations all across Europe. Laura, how do you actually work with these different patient association groups in your network? Because when we talk about the need for AMR patient associations, we often come across the challenge and the barrier that AMR permeates across a lot of different patients and there is a lot of talk about like maybe instead of just AMR patient associations we could uh, use patient associations that are already there that they can be affected by AMR issues resistant issues that that have to be really involved in infection prevention and control measures so how do you actually work with the patient groups that are part of of this group? Yes. Well, I would first of all start with this comment that, you know, we we all know that AMR has no borders, really, and hence it's really important to emphasize the One Health, you know, approach that is needed to address this challenge, because indeed AMR is driven by interrelated dynamics in the human, animal and environmental health sectors. And infections really have, you know, no no border because they can easily cross from humans to animals and spread from one geographical location to another. And if we only specifically focus on uh, public health, our group uh, indeed comprises various organizations which uh, focuses on different disease areas. For instance, we have more broad, let's say, national patient federations, such as the Spanish Patients Forum. Other members are more disease-specific, such as uh, an Italian patient group working on scleroderma. But we also have associations operating at the EU level, like the European Patients Forum, the European Lung Foundation, as well as global members, such as the International Alliance of Patients Organization. So this is why it's really important for you know these members to work together and to be close, especially to learn you know, from best practices. So for us, information sharing is really critical because I mentioned before that across Europe, we have significant differences when it comes to antimicrobial resistance also and healthcare associated infection rates. And so it's important to really come together, be on the same table and to, you know, drive change together. 
And in terms of the main activities of the group, we, because we are Brussels-based, we try and keep our members abreast of the main initiative that are you know, part of the EU health policy agenda. This year, there is a lot of momentum uh, on antimicrobial resistance. Uh, we expect a new joint action on antimicrobial resistance uh, launched by the, the European Commission. We also expect council recommendations on antimicrobial resistance, so has to boost, to step up the actions at the national level when it comes to you know, addressing antimicrobial resistance. But also we coordinate you know, and support the activities of our members. I tried always to bring the European perspective and you know, the, the, the patient engagement element at the national level. So during, for instance, events that our members organize within their own networks, within their own constituencies. We have held numerous workshops with the members and also as a result of our conversations, we drafted and launched a declaration on AMR back in 2021 to, to mark the World Health Day on the 7th of April. We have hosted high-level debates also in the European Parliament. And of course, we contribute, you know, to public stakeholder consultations uh, from time to time, really bringing the focus on the patient empowerment and also the prevention culture that is much needed as well. Mm -hmm. I would like to now get your perspective, Pernilla, being on the other side of this group, right? So what does an initiative like the AMR Patient Group means for associations like yours and for your work locally, nationally here in Sweden, for example? Well, it means a lot. I think it's really great. It means that we can work together. We can make our voice heard. We can get a stronger voice. We work together, collaboration across the borders. So, of course, that's a big bonus. And um, we learn from each other. I have uh, already started connecting with other organizations and we're helping each other with, okay, you got that connection and how do you think about this? It, it's um, really, really valuable. So that means a lot. It's like a catalyzer in a sense. Yes. Also. So actually these days we are recording now 7th of March and yesterday and today is the high level meeting on AMR within the context of the EU uh, presidency by Sweden. So it's here in Stockholm. I was yesterday at the first part of the meeting and there was a lot of conversations about how the synergies between people like the European Union can really help us bringing people together and like carrying that energy of doing things, you know, like I think I see myself very represented in that feeling because I love working with people and when I can ball ideas and while I can just come up with new initiatives and you have people that are equally excited to make things happen it's where things actually do happen when you have yeah. that synergy so when i heard about the amr patient group i thought oh what a wonderful initiative because all these people are seemingly very isolated in their different national contexts but there is also so much to share and to learn and to work together and coming from brussels you know that is kind of the epitome of Europe as coming in together it's I think is wonderful and I am very happy to hear you know Pernilla that from the patients associations and from your role this is also something that you see 
actually yeah. happening, right? Absolutely. That is that is wonderful. I can imagine, Laura, that it is not easy to set up such a project, such a wide project. Uh, Europe, for some people, might seem just like one thing is there, but it is incredibly different. You were mentioning how different it is in rates of resistance, how different it is in antimicrobial use all across the European Union. I would like to know, you started in 2020, we are now into 2023. As you said, this year is very important in the European level from an aim. Our perspective is high there in the agenda and it's been very highlighted that things are going to move forward and they should be moving forward. What have you guys learned so far from this project? Well, I think an important issue that we have faced is really the lack of awareness, right? As I was mentioning at the beginning in Europe about the challenge posed by antimicrobial resistance. I was really surprised when I sort of analyzed, I look at the latest statistics that were published in November by the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control come across these figures, only one, you know, in two Europeans know that antibiotics are not effective against viruses, and only three in 10 Europeans know that the unnecessary use of antibiotics makes them ineffective. So for me, these are really, you know, important challenges that we must address together, hence the, the idea of, you know, this European patient group on AMR. And also they need to communicate, you know, not only what the problem is, what the burden of AMR is, but also the solutions in a very effective and clear manner using a simple language as well. Because indeed our members and, you know, more broadly patient organizations speak different languages, have to deal with different and various situations within their own context, within their own actually countries. So that's why it's important to, to communicate, you know, the solutions in a very simple sort of and transparent manner using a simple language. And we also translated various sort of infographic and declaration in other languages. So, you know, we can widely distribute important messages and recommendations in various settings and at all levels of governance, not only in the European level, meaning among the policy makers here in Brussels, but also at the national, regional and local level. Uh, we need to distribute more and more communication toolkits, you know, brochures in schools, in public settings, can be even within churches, because we absolutely need to address this gap in awareness. I kind of, now I'm thinking about that, you know, many people refer to antimicrobial resistance as a silent pandemic or the next pandemic, but actually it is happening already. That's why we must, you know, focus on prevention rather than cure. And uh, I think now there is much more political will, but also, you know, patient engagement and drive to, to really make a change. And that's promising. <laughs> I wanted to ask you this question now that we're talking about pandemic and you guys working from two sides of the spectrum. When I think about pandemic, I think if we are honest with ourselves when we use the word pandemic, I feel like a lot of people think that there is a solution, that there is an end to it. 
And we've seen this with COVID, right? That they were saying the pandemic of COVID is the, is the pandemic over, the pandemic will be over, these kind of narratives. But when we talk about antimicrobial resistance, the problem of resistance in microbes, it is really nothing that can be fully solved, cured, or we can be over it. It's something that we need to learn to live with and we need to be able to mitigate or to be able to reduce its effects to as little as possible, right? Have you in your work come across these kind of difficulties when communicating about resistance? For example, Pernilla. When I started debating about this in uh, 2011, I noticed it was People thought, oh, cry wolf, she lost her daughter. That was just one off occasion. It's not happening to me. It won't happen to me. It's really scary, the lack of knowledge about antibiotic resistance. And yes, there are a lot of challenges, really. And we really need to make it simple and make people understand that this is happening now. And I used to compare this to like environmental problems that it takes a lot of work and maybe in 50 years time we will see the difference. We won't see the difference in 10 years because mm-hmm. the medical companies need to find new antibiotics, for example. That There's hardly any work done with that because there's no profit mm-hmm. and, and the antibiotics stop working maybe within five years. There's so much that needs to be done now in order to make a difference in maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. I I completely agree with you. Do you want to mention something about this, Laura? So yes, I probably would like to to you know go back t- uh, to the fact that indeed the incidence of of AMR varies widely across Europe, right? So we have a better situation in the Nordic countries, while you know uh, the AMR sort of rates are much more worrying in Eastern Europe and also in the Southern Europe. If I think about uh, Greece, Italy, Romania, experience uh, the, the highest overall burden of infection. Talking about the period from 2016 to 2020. And uh, there are various challenges, various practices, you know, among healthcare professionals. But what I think, you know, is the common sort of element and when really the interests should lie on is, you know, the, the focus on prevention, because we can prevent, you know, high level of infections and also ultimately, you know, death in hospitals if we adopt, you know, a more responsible use of current antibiotics. And so, yes, we need a behavioral change among health, you know, veterinary personnel, but also among citizens and among patients with should be better informed because ultimately we're talking about our own, you know, their own health. But at the same time, and also what we have been evangelizing here in, in Brussels at the European and also global level is that we should also focus on what can be done right now. We, yes, we need antibiotics, but also new antibiotics will be available also, you know, in probably 10, 20 years. But we have amazing solutions right now, for instance, medical technologies, screening, uh, diagnostic tests that can really help us solve the problem. And hence, I would really love to, you know, focus on this prevention culture. I would love to arrive at a situation where, you know, patients, when they go to the doctor because they have a sore throat or a bad cold or 
you know, something, of course, more serious, ask, first of all, for a test that can, you know, differentiate whether it's a bacterial or a virus infection. And for me, really, you know, medical technologies uh, can really play a significant role. Not only we need education, much more awareness. We need, yes, also antibiotic stewardship programs uh, in, in primary and secondary care settings with the active engagement of patients, but also further investments in medical technologies because ultimately these solutions, those, you know, screening tests, screening technologies, a point of care testing can really and significantly lead to better patient outcomes and also generate cost savings for the society, for healthcare systems. That's what I would like also to, to mention because it's important to, to focus on these uh, prevention measures mm-hmm. which are available currently. Yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately, an infection that doesn't happen is an infection that doesn't need to be treated, right? That's kind of like the overall idea. And I agree with you that if we will get to the point where we have very innovative technologies that, you know, quickly can give you an answer if there is a bacterial infection, which bacterial infection it is to have targeted therapy to be able to prevent the transmission if someone is a carrier or a particular uh, bacteria as well. That could be really impactful. Yes, Bernilla? I also like to say that it's important to reach the users in society, or rather the non-users, because every person who doesn't use the antibiotics won't be the patient in the hospital. And for a lot of people, antibiotic resistance is something very abstract. They don't understand it. It's You can't see it. And the, the people who have been affected are often uh, dismissed like it's, uh, oh, it just happened to you and it's no big deal for me. But somehow we need to reach them and understand that, yeah, your daughter might die of pneumonia because she can't get antibiotics or you can't have that hip transplant because you might get an infection. It's important to the uses of the antibiotics also, that's important to reach and to teach them and to understand them, the seriousness we're in. We, we are here now. And I would also like to, to finish by saying that, you know, members and, and people, patient advocates like Bernilla are absolutely critical and, and valuable, you know, to meaningfully drive change because we need to have more patient experiences. So has to, you know, translate this sort of abstract concept of NAMR, you know, to something that is actually happening that, you know, can impact and affect you every time at any given time at everywhere really so um, patient citizens you know and people need to hear uh, these stories and i'm really really grateful for having pernilla but also other patient advocates and testimonials you know within the amr patient group uh, because we can only you know learn and make you know a change within our own sort of families and practices Mm-hmm. to fight antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, stories. I'm feeling close to to the problem. Being able to see yourself represented with the stories you are hearing, that it could be your neighbor, your family member. You can really make it 
tangible for people to understand that this is a real issue, the same as there is people that have different cancers or people that can get some infectious diseases that are more prevalent and people actually see them happening. So I agree with Pernilla was mentioning that it is still something that it's not really talked about if someone has sepsis. Maybe the concept of it was a resistant sepsis is not really put out there for people to understand what that means and that it can be a reality for them as well. Sadly, we are running almost out of time, but I wanted to wrap up this interview by looking a little bit to the future. Pernilla, could you maybe tell us a little bit of what are patient associations like yours in need of? What is a way that we could help patient associations like yours and what kind of collaborations are you looking for? Well, we need funding like everyone else needs, but funding is really the importance to to get the work done. A lot of our work is uh, totally non-profit, but we need money, of course. So that's some easy access or easier access to find funding, find companies or find uh, organizations that want to fund our work. And then, of course, collaborations. That's really important. I'd like to collaborate more with uh, decisions makers, politicians and healthcare. I still haven't seen any politicians putting antibiotic resistance uh, high up on the agenda when it's been election, for example. So that's something I'd, I'd like to see. And also that we can uh, be seen as a positive asset. Mm-hmm when uh, decisions are being made about how to approach AMR. Definitely. And for you, Laura, what do you see for the AMR patient group happening in the short and long future? Well, uh, this project, this group has nicely and steadily grown over the last three years. I'm really happy about, let's say, not only the identity, but also, you know, the messages that we are carrying out, that we're trying to bring, you know, to forward, to advance here in Brussels, but also at the national level. It's really my intention to continue to expand this group. So it has to include, you know, relevant patient-led organizations, patient advocates, so we can learn from one another. We can collaborate, you know, and drive change together because we can't work in silo. We need to be, you know, connected. And uh, and that's why this is my ask. If you know any, you know, organization representing patients, uh, not only in Sweden, but also, you know, in Belgium, elsewhere, I would, you know, be happy to be connected and, you know, to work together and to welcome this new representative in our group. I also believe that keeping antibiotics safe is really everybody's responsibility. And so we would like to continue to advance these messages. Last year, we also formed a informal group of members of the European Parliament who kindly agreed to become MEP ambassadors of our group. So I believe that there is the real interest and also engagement from EU decision makers. And uh, clearly, because we are, you know, approaching the elections, European elections in 2024, I think we should leverage more and more, you know, on the supports and key role that these decision makers 
not only in the European Parliament, but also in the European Commission and the Council of the EU can play because they can help us sustain the interest and also mobilize change within their own countries. Mm -hmm. And so I would just conclude, you know, by saying that not only we are always available, you know, to, to have conversations with, but also to, to support your activities and member organizations, work programs at the national level. And again, I'm here happy to, you know, to support and to work together, but also to drive, you know, some more creative work uh, across Europe, because we can really be, you know, the pioneering in, in this debate. Definitely. Yes. I would encourage if any of our listeners works with some patient associations or know someone within, within that field to, of course, go to the links in our show notes and maybe reach out to the MR patient group. And of course, if any Sweden politician happens to be listening to us which might happen a big shout out that you know people like pernilla working very close to the patients people that are everywhere in our society really need your help and need that you put these things forward in your priorities and that people hear that you really care about their health even in the context of amr as well I want to thank you both so much for being with us, for making your voices heard. It was a pleasure for me to be able to highlight this project and to get to know you, Pernilla, and your story and the work that you're doing here in Sweden is very important. And Laura, I wish you the best into growing your network and the big group. And I hope to see a lot of the fruitful results of all these people that really have the same goal in mind, working together across Europe. Thank you so, so much, Laura and Pernilla. Hope to see you around. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back from the interview. So today at our commentary, I think we're going to focus on some of the things that were interesting to us. But I think there's a main scientific concept that I think we should explain a little bit for those of you that didn't really realize what Pernilla was talking at the beginning of the interview. She was mentioning that one of her daughters actually sadly died of an infection with an ESBL klebsiella. Elin, can you tell us what an ESBL bacterial strain of bacteria means? Yes, so ESBL is actually short for extended spectrum beta-lactamases. And beta-lactamases are these resistance mechanisms that bacteria can have. They are enzymes that break down beta-lactam antibiotics. There are a lot of different beta-lactamases, but the thing with the extended spectrum is that they have the ability to break down two types of beta-lactam antibiotics, mm -hmm. which makes them quite difficult to treat and it can make them a little bit clinically hard to handle. Yes, that means that, you know, you, you for sure cannot use a list two of the things that you will normally use yeah, to treat exactly. these mm. infections. Mm. And standard spectrum beta-lactamases strains tend to be problematic also in hospital-acquired infections in general, right? Yes. So here in Uppsala, we had a very big example of also a Klebsiella strain that was ESBL that uh, was the cause of a very big outbreak back in 2005 mm -hmm. as well. So if you out there... Here again, ESBL bacteria, now you know it means that it's resistant to 
two of the most common antibiotics that are used out there in the clinics. Yes, that's the most common use definition, at least. Great. All right, Ellen, can you tell us uh, some of the things you learn or insights from listening to this interview? Yeah, I think it was a very inspiring interview. I really... I really thought a lot about the, the thing that Pernilla told us, that she was actually able to implement a real change in the Gothenburg hospital, where their effort actually made the hospital make these single rooms for the preemie babies. Mm-hmm. I think that was amazing, that their organization actually implemented a big change in a hospital. Yeah, for me, I mean, if anything, listening to them, it made even more clear that, you know, the numbers and and gathering the voices is what gives power to to the patients in this case or to any social movement or any group of people that need to be heard. Having a way to aggregate them and to bring them together really makes a difference, which I think is so cool that, you know, from the European level with this First Health Europe and the AMR Patient Association, they're trying to even bring more people together all across the European Union. So they don't only have to be alone either in Sweden or in certain Swedish cities or in other countries, but you can you know, find that they are all there working with the same goal, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty cool also to hear. I I think Pernilla's story is obviously a tragic one. You know, you don't want to have to get to the point where families have to suffer like that in order for this thing to be understood. And for me also, as I said, I don't have kids, you know, Mm. and... Obviously, when we think about how antibiotic resistance puts current medical procedures and medical system in jeopardy because we are not able to protect those at most risk of infections, these preemie babies, these premature babies are a clear example of it. Mm. And yet we don't talk so much about it, right? No, no, really. And I really thought about what she said also with the healthcare professionals being scared of giving the information to the parents. Because, I mean, it feels like that is also so important to communicate in this specific case, but also with patients in general, mm-hmm. about what is going on and what it means and what antibiotic usage means. And and I think that connects with the thing that I talked a lot about with spreading awareness, mm-hmm. right? Yes. To make people understand that this problem is not something something abstract that might come in the future that won't affect them, but it's something very real mm-hmm. that is happening now that might have an impact in their life or with their loved ones. Yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Powerful words from Pernilla. Mm. And I'm happy that we had also Laura to, you know, explain that from the institutions, the need is also seen mm-hmm. and they're putting the money, at least partially, that is needed to create these bigger associations and, and to support the voices that need to be heard. And also kind of work in synchrony, these patient associations or these different aggregations of patients. It doesn't have to be only with specific diseases, as they were saying, mm. or it can be bigger, you know, compendiums of people that work with patients that are able to then support their members with the right information mm-hmm. and the right knowledge. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this will permeate through the society in a sense, right? Because not everybody is a patient at a given moment, but they might be in the future, right? Or they might go through it. Patient is a status that might be long life when you you know you have a chronic disease, or it might be something that only happens in, in a specific time. So I think we have to think that all of us might be patient someday, right? (laughs) Yeah, their work is so important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Another thing that I really enjoyed of seeing the alignment is on how important infection prevention and control is. And I like that uh, Laura was bringing it from the perspective of their pre-group association. They want to focus on this. They want to give out the information that is very relevant for this particular set of actions that are able to be taken here and now. And then knowing that Bernilla, on her side, when she started her association, they were seeing that these prevention and infection control measures are essential and are something super important, as you were saying, that they were able to advocate for like, okay, in my case, 15 babies got infected with a particular bacterial strain. If we would have had this baby separated, this wouldn't have happened. Can we do something about it? So you see that, you know, the need for these measures it's apparent across a lot of different sectors of, of the healthcare as well. So it was very nice to see the synchrony of like these patient associations, local patient associations being in alignment with what is this big, big compendium of, of groups want to also achieve. So that was that was cool. It was very cool to like see the two different perspectives, as you say, mm-hmm. two different points of views, but they are very very connected with each other. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Overall, I'm very happy that we were able to connect with them, and especially on a pretty busy European year for AMR, as uh, Laura was also mentioning. And I hope to see progress, and I hope that they are able to really make a difference at the European level, but also supporting these other associations at the local and national levels as well. I agree completely. Great. Are you ready, Ellen, to move into the news section? Because it's coming in hot this this month, right? I'm sure I am. All right, let's move into the news sections. Welcome to the news section for this April episode. Uh, we're going to start today with a more social science article, even though it has a lot of numbers in it as well, and a lot of statistics, which is used in a lot of different sciences uh, areas. Ellen, can you tell us about this first article of the month? Yes, for sure. And as you said, it's a paper that it's a bit outside of the scope that I usually work in, but it was super interesting. So the title is Financial Incentives and Antibiotic Prescribing Patterns, Evidence from Dispensing Physicians in a Public Healthcare System. This paper was published the 18th of February in Social Science and Medicine. So the aim of this paper was to look into how on-site pharmacies affect the prescription rates of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So on-site pharmacies means that you have uh, your doctor prescribes you the drug, but also sells you the drug. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that this was quite common also in countries within Europe. So in this case, they have been looking into Austria. And in Austria, these on-site pharmacies are allowed in areas when there is no pharmacies closely available. Uh, So what they have done is that they have looked into the prescription of antibiotics done by all the general practitioners in Austria. It's shortened GPs in this paper. So what they did is that they used the group of GPs with a stable status of either on-site pharmacy or not as a sort of control group and compared it to the GPs that had a change in their status during this time period that they looked into. Mm -hmm. So either they gained the on-site pharmacy privileges or they lost it. Mm-hmm. So what they could see is that switching from having the on-site pharmacy privileges to not having it conducted a reduced uh, prescription of antibiotics with 9.2%. All right. So that means that they saw that if a GP 
didn't have an on-site pharmacy or a GP or GPs in general, it would mean that there is 9% less prescriptions of antibiotics. Exactly. And I mean, and this is very important in the context of that it has been proven that increased prescription of antibiotics and increased use actually drives resistance. All right. Yeah. So do they talk in the paper if they have data to say that this increase in prescription of antibiotics by doctors that have an on-site pharmacy is because they might make more money out of those prescriptions? So with the on-site pharmacies, the doctor actually gains uh, a markup value on mm-hmm. the drugs that they prescribe. Although this 9.2% decrease in prescription rates of GPs without these on-site pharmacies, it can be because the GPs with the on-site pharmacy actually prescribe more. Or it can be that the drugs that are prescribed by the general practitioners without an on-site pharmacy isn't fulfilled by the patients. Because when you have these on-site pharmacies, you know, you, you meet your doctor, they prescribe you the drug and you get the drug straight away. But if you are in a setting where there isn't an on-site pharmacy, you will talk with your doctor, you will get a prescription and then you as a patient need to go to the pharmacy and actually pick up the drug. And in this case, this data set is only on prescription that has been filled by the patients. Mm-hmm. All right. So we don't really know where the difference lies with this data set. Did the researchers address that uh, problem or that question in any way? Yes, they did. So they made a simulation about patient behavior and they saw that if there is 4% or less of the patient not filling their prescriptions, this indicates a prescribing effect. Mm-hmm. But if it's 6% or above, that indicates a dispensing effect. Which means that it's just because the people are not really picking up exactly. their their antibiotics when they actually need it. Mm. Which I think is very interesting, right? Because I think this paper kind of highlights that, you know, the difference in the antibiotics that end up in the patient, of course, there's always a next step, which is do the people that go to the pharmacy that get the antibiotic take the antibiotic Mm -hmm. when they're home? Obviously, we cannot really get the data on that. But here it kind of points out to two main things, which is are the differences we're seeing really because, you know, doctors might want to make more money and then they think there is no harm into giving an antibiotic when maybe it's not completely needed or is actually that when you actually have to go get the antibiotic some people might be like oh maybe I'm not that sick mm. I'm not gonna go to the pharmacy mm. even if it's I don't know how far away so I I think that's actually a pretty a smart article that kind of poses up these questions right that even if we can see a difference in this prescription from physicians that have the option to directly sell the antibiotic. Mm. There might be other reasons behind those differences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I think this paper was a bit harder than I expected when I kind of chose it by the looking at the topic and what it was. I found it very interesting because I tend to see a lot of the conversation about financial incentives into GPs and doctors to be highly associated with developing countries and mm-hmm. low and middle income countries. And I think it's nice to highlight that, you know, these things might actually be happening also in high income countries that have this kind of setup in public health systems, right? Yes. Not only private driven systems. Mm, I agree. And I must say I learned a lot. I didn't even know about pharmacy dispensing before I read this paper. So that was a very new insight to me. I thought everyone got their prescription and walked down to the pharmacy. Right. But what happens when you are somewhere where the pharmacy is maybe 200 kilometers away, right? Exactly. 
makes total sense, but I had not really actually thought about it. No, not given it much thought. So yeah, yeah it was it was very good. Great. I enjoyed it. Yes, I hope that some people at home also got to learn that, you know, this is something that happens maybe closer than we expect and that it's not completely known yet why maybe these differences are happening. Mm, exactly. So Eva, would you like to tell us about the second paper that we looked through this month? Yes. And I have to say maybe it took me half a month to actually go through this whole paper because it's pretty hefty paper. And, and if you really want to go into the nitty gritty and the details, there is so much that you can get out of it. But yes, I will talk about the article published in Nature Communications back in the 18th of March, titled The Evolution of Antibiotic Resistance is Associated with Collateral Drug Phenotypes in Mycobacterium Tuberculosis. So first I want to start by saying that maybe you vaguely remember collateral sensitivity as a concept that we went through looking at a paper back in our 16th episode that feels like another lifetime ago, where we uh, talked about this article that looked into the mechanisms for collateral sensitivity to one particular antibiotic, which was nitrofurantoin. And as we explained back there, collateral sensitivity means that when a bacteria gets resistance to a particular antibiotic, at the same time, it gets more sensitive to other drugs, right? It's also the opposite to cross-resistance, which is when a bacteria gets resistant to an antibiotic, it also gets resistant to other kind of antibiotics. So this paper in this article, which probably took them years to actually finish our investigations, not only because of the amount of work that is in this article, but also because they're working with an organism that is extremely slow growing, which is mycobacterium tuberculosis. What they went about, it was to see, okay, we know that collateral phenotypes, as they call it here, happen. That means if a bacteria gets resistant to something, there is some effects, side effects of having that resistance when it comes to how they behave with other drugs and other things around. So what they wanted to see is, is this actually happening for treatments and drugs used to uh, treat or kill mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the bacterial agent of tuberculosis. is one of the biggest killers in the world right now. And the interesting part here is also that a lot of times we use a lot of different things to treat mycobacterium tuberculosis. Mm. Not only because resistance is already developed and is there present in the clinics, but also because of the nature of how this bacteria grows in our lungs, inside our cells. Uh, normal antibiotic therapy doesn't seem to be so effective. So there's combinations, there's treatment regimes that are long and tiresome and resistance only makes this much, much worse. So they have this question, can we use data from these collateral phenotypes to find new treatments that can shorten the time of treatment of tuberculosis, but also prevent the evolution and emergence of antibiotic resistance in tuberculosis as well. Mm -hmm. And good news, just saying now that the main result of this paper is that, yes, it seems like we can use this data to find ways of treating or at least Theoretically, we could use this to treat mycobacterium tuberculosis in a way that can prevent antibiotic resistance, which is nice. 
So they did a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. <laughs> yes. It's impressive how much work. So kudos to, you know, Natalie, Chijen, Gregory, and Matthew out there because this is a very in-depth article. And I think I just want to go through the main results of the paper, right? Yeah, like, I think that's so, a great idea. Because it's also very nice how the paper is very flowy in the narrative of like, what is it that they're asking and what is it that they are answering. So they went ahead and selected for resistance to 23 different agents with mycobacterium tuberculosis. And we have to say that they use a strain of mycobacterium tuberculosis that is not virulent, so they can work with it nicely in the lab. This means they won't get sick of it, but it's still very slow growing and very difficult to work with it as well. They use drug sensitivity profiling, they use genomics, and they use evolutionary studies to kind of answer all these questions that we were talking about. What they found is, yes, there is a possibility for collateral phenotypes when resistance is selected. They were able to see that these collateral phenotypes are of two kinds. One, what they call collateral resistance, which we could also see as kind of cross-resistance, but they could also see collateral sensitivity. When they investigate the cross-resistance of this collateral resistance, what they see is something very common, which is antibiotics that give rise to resistance can also confer resistance to similar type of antibiotics. And that's because the mechanisms are similarly. So when you then develop resistance, you can also protect through similar behaved antibiotics. But very interestingly, they could also see that for resistance that have to do with efflux mechanisms, which means just pumping out things out of the cell, or resistant mechanisms that have to do with the metabolism of mycobacterium tuberculosis of the cell, they could also confer low-level resistance to antibiotics that are completely different. Mm. And these are guess because there are more general mechanisms, mm. you know, like just pumping out antibiotics. You know, you, if you can pump out antibiotic, it doesn't matter how that antibiotic works, no. as long as you can get rid of it, in mm. a sense. And then also changing the metabolism kind of makes sense. That mm. could sideways affect other things, different things. Yeah, I mean, but it's still a very scary result that our bacteria can gain resistance against something it hasn't even met, if you understand what I mean. I haven't even been interacting with that antibiotic yet. We've seen before, yeah. Mm. For sure. Yeah, you're right. They could also see that these collateral sensitivities have different mechanisms. They look different ways depending what kind of agent has selected for the resistance that confers sensitivity to something else. And they tend to see that the majority of these effects are unidirectional as well. And then here, now the results of the cool stuff is that they looked into, can we actually get to use this knowledge that we have now, okay, antibiotic A gives you more sensitivity to agent B or C or whatever. Can we use this data in a useful way? And by looking into in vitro experiments, they could actually see that if you use these collateral sensitivities, you can, one, prevent the growth of drug-resistant strains directly. Obviously, you know, they are more sensitive, so you can prevent the growth. And you can also use this knowledge to target populations that are mixed. So populations of bacteria that have some sensitive bacteria and also some resistant bacteria, which is pretty cool. And because all of this was done in vitro, you know, which is in a test tube, in lab conditions, it begs the question, can we actually use this in the patient. Mycobacterium tuberculosis grows in a very particular way inside our immune cells, the macrophages. Mm. So they did some tests that seems to indicate that this also works when the mycobacterium is growing in the same host 
conditions, which is promising because mm -hmm. it means maybe we can actually use this in the clinics in order to treat our patients mm. more effectively. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, they are able to, to confirm that combination therapies that is targeting these collateral phenotypes can suppress the evolution of drug resistance in mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is very good news because yes. multidrug resistant mycobacterium tuberculosis and extremely resistant mycobacterium tuberculosis are actual things that are infecting people nowadays. Mm -hmm. If we can prevent this to happen, that would be such a way ahead to be able to treat these patients. And I think I didn't mention it, but why preventing the evolution of resistance in mycobacterium tuberculosis is so important is because due to the way that this bacteria is growing in the lungs, the accumulation of mutants happens in the patient. So it's a bit different than when we talk about, for example, UTIs that are resistant. It's generally because you become infected with a uh, strain that is already resistant. But when we're talking about mycobacterium tuberculosis, because they're so slow growing, because there are very, very long uh, infections in the patients, the selection and the evolution of resistance is actually happening there. So can we give our patients an antibiotic treatment regime that can limit this potential evolution mm. of resistance? I think it's incredibly, incredibly interesting yes. and beneficial. Mm -hmm. So... It was a hard read, obviously. It was very technical. But I think we've been able to kind of show to the people that this is very important and it's actually pretty promising. Yes, very. I got very positive when I read this paper. And I mean, as you say, it's it's very technical. It's a bit complex. But also, it's so impressing the amount of work that they have done. <laughs> I was so, so impressed. And as you say, they reached very interesting results. It's very promising for the future. I think it's very nice that here we are one person that is always in the office sitting and one person that is in the lab most of the time because you are able to appreciate how much like hands-on work goes into this uh, work that we are talking about here yeah. in the podcast and for me I'm like very focused on like the results and this can be applied and this mm. is like and you are like oh my god they work so much it's like yes. it's very good to also acknowledge that yeah and especially when you work with such slow growing bacteria mm -hmm. as well oh the patience you need just to put it into context how fast do your bacteria grow in the lab I mean, they did this MIC testing and we do that overnight or for 18 hours and they had to grow them for 10 days. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just hope that you guys at home enjoyed the, the content of this month episode as much as, as we did here. Yeah, I agree. The interview was very interesting and the papers, although maybe a bit complex, they were very interesting. I really enjoyed reading them and I really enjoyed the discussion we had here today, Eva. Yeah, I agree. Hope to have you back with us uh, next month. See ya! Bye! For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is... UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.